For our scripture reading, let's turn to Matthew 3. Matthew 3, we'll read the whole chapter, and the text is from 13 to 17. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John himself was clothed in camel's hair, with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region around the Jordan went out to him, and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance. Do not think to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that Abraham is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the tree. Therefore every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And then our text, Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and are you coming to me? But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it be to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he allowed him. When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighted upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven, saying, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Our sermon this morning was prepared by Reverend Barry Bukema of the Tabor United Reformed Church. Brothers and sisters in the Lord, contrary to what so many people believe, even among the Reformed, baptism does not mean immersion, nor does the sacrament of baptism, biblically administered, ever involve being dunked under the water. Such was never the biblical mode of baptism, but only a tradition adapted early on by an erring church and accepted as an almost universal practice by most evangelical churches today. And without doubt, it's why many young people, even from Reformed churches, who deny God's covenant claim on them by their baptism as an infant, think that when they come to faith, they need to take the plunge and get really baptized by being totally immersed water. Now, besides the fact that because Ephesians 4 says that there is but one baptism, we should never be baptized twice, we should also never want to be baptized any other way than the, that made clear to us in the Word of God. Contrary to what some may think, the mode of baptism is of real significance, and it's important not for our ultimate salvation, but to properly symbolize the salvation it promises for its mode cannot be separated from its meaning, just as the mode of broken bread and poured out wine for the Lord's Supper cannot be separated from the meaning 
of Christ's broken body and shed blood given up for us on the cross. Therefore, it does make a difference whether or not it is only death, burial, and resurrection that baptized signifies, as supposedly symbolized by immersion, or the descent of the Holy Spirit into the Christian's life, bringing cleansing from sin and union with Christ, as truly symbolized by pouring or sprinkling. And just how important this is, we will see when we consider John's baptism of Jesus and Jesus' baptism of us. First of all, consider John's baptism of Jesus. In Matthew 3:13, tells us, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. Setting aside for now the uniqueness of Jesus' baptism by John, what was the nature of that baptism with which countless others had already been baptized by John? And more importantly, what was the origin of that baptism? Some say baptism was introduced by John the Baptist. Others maintain it was a Jewish custom to initiate Gentile converts by a rite of immersion, and that Christian baptism is an overgrowth of this custom. But nothing could be further from the truth. For there was nothing about this practice, John's baptism, that was new. Rather, the people assumed John to be a prophet sent from God precisely because he was baptizing. Notice the question asked by the representatives of the Pharisees, those eagle-eyed heresy hunters, who would have instantly pounced upon Jesus for the teaching of any new rite that were not acquired with or were not in accordance with the law. For after John denied that he was the Messiah, or Elijah returned to earth, they asked him in John 1.24, why then are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? By this question, these Jewish leaders clearly indicate that the Old Testament predicted the coming of someone who would baptize and who would baptize, and that it was by this activity that he would be known. But where is it predicted that Christ or the prophet would immerse anyone? Nowhere. But there are explicit prophecies where the activity of the Messiah and the the Messianic age is associated with sprinkling or pouring. Isaiah 52:15 says, So will he sprinkle many nations. And in Ezekiel 26:25, God declares that then, in the Messianic age, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. Thus the Old Testament Jew not only knew about, but expected baptizing activities in connection with the Messiah. And this baptizing had nothing to do with immersion. The fact is, John's baptism was nothing new to the Jews, for ritual baptism is as old as the law. There, there we find all kinds of ceremonial purifications. There were baptisms. Thus, from the days of Moses, they had known the ceremony of baptism. And the New Testament itself calls these Old Testament purifications baptisms. So, Hebrews 9.10 describes various or different kinds of washings. And the original word translated as washings here is baptisms, baptismos in the Greek. In other words, the Old Testament knew of different kinds of baptisms. And Hebrews 9 goes on to describe four kinds of them in verses 13, 19, and 21. Baptisms that involve sprinklings of water also, that involve sprinklings of water alone. Sprinklings of water and ashes, sprinklings of oil, 
and sprinklings of blood. So if baptism means immersion, we have a real problem. For it is impossible to find even one kind of immersion, let alone different kinds. But Old Testament baptisms were of different kinds, as Hebrews 9.10 says. And so it's easy to find different kinds of sprinklings. All of them were ceremonial washings for purifications. And as John 3.22-25 tells us, this is what John and later Jesus were doing when they baptized. Now when we come to Jesus' baptism by John, we see even more clear, clearly the intimate connection between baptism and the law of Moses. And though we should see the relation between the Old Testament baptisms and John's baptism to Christian baptism, we need to understand that Jesus' baptism was not the baptism of John. For though he was baptized by John, he did not receive the baptism of John. This is unquestionably true because the baptism of John was for sinners, but Christ was not a sinner. Furthermore, John's baptism represented repentance for the forgiveness of sins. But Jesus could neither repent nor receive forgiveness of sins. In addition, this baptism of John was to prepare a people ready for the Lord. But Jesus needed no preparation for receiving himself. No wonder John tries to debtor him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? In John's mind, there was no way that Jesus could be classed with all the others who came to him to be baptized. And John never changed his mind about this. But something that Jesus said did so change his understanding of what was happening, that he readily baptized the Lord. So what did Jesus say? He said, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. As Deuteronomy 6.25 tells us, righteousness involves obedience to the law. And as Galatians 4.4 says, John was born under the law. For this reason, Jesus underwent the law of circumcision on the eighth day of being presented after his birth with the prescribed offerings in the temple and of being present at all the annual feasts as commanded by the law. But law what law was he obeying as baptism? It was the law of Numbers 8, verses 6 and 7, which says, Take the Levites and cleanse them, make them ceremonial clean. Thus you shall do to cleanse them, sprinkle the water of purification upon them. The Levites were priests. Jesus Christ was and is our high priest forever. Not according to Levi, but according to the order of Melchizedek. Thus Christ's baptism was a ceremonial act of his ordination to the priesthood. It was the rite that set him apart as priest and a minister of holy things. Now, before any man could become a priest, three things were required. First, as Numbers 4, 3 and verse 47 indicate, we must be he must be 30 years old. That is why Christ's age at his baptism is given as 30 years in Luke 3, 23. Second, such a man must be called by God to this office, as was Aaron, the first high priest, which is why Hebrews 5, 4-10 says that Christ was called by God to be our high priest forever. Third, he must be sprinkled with water, as Numbers 8, 6 and 7 says, by one who was already a priest, as Exodus 29, 9 and Numbers 25, 13 declare. And this is why Jesus was baptized by John, who had inherited that office from his father, 
as Luke 1 verse 5 and 13 make clear. Thus Jesus, who knew he was called to be our high priest by God his Father, waited until he was 30 years old and then came to John to fulfill all righteousness, that is, to meet the last demand of the Old Testament law for a priest before he began his public ministry. <clears throat> Further evidence of the fact that Christ was ordained a priest by Jesus or by John's baptism is seen that when he cleansed the temple in Matthew twenty one twelve, he was exercising his authority as a priest. For when the Jews asked him, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Jesus pointed to John's baptism, which he had received, and asked them concerning it. Where did it come from? Was it from heaven or from men? Thus it was clearly point thus he was clearly pointing out the connection between his priestly authority and this baptism by John. But Jesus was not consecrated a priest according to the weak order of Levi, as a descendant of Aaron, but of the infinite superiority order of Melchizedek. Thus he became our high priest, not that he might, as a priest in the early earthly temple, offer continual sacrifices and offerings that can take that can never take away sin, but that he might once for all offer up himself as a sacrifice to take away the sin of the world. For he became a priest, says Hebrews seven sixteen, not on a basis of a regulation as to his ancestry, but to the basis of the power of an indestructible life. This is the far greater and divine high priest that only Jesus could fulfill, because, though born as one of us, he is the eternal Son of Almighty God. And yet, though born to be such a high priest, Jesus, who was born of a woman, born under law, as Galatians 4 verse 4 says, could not and did not absolve himself from the obligation imposed upon him by the law as a priest of God. That law was the law of God, and that ceremonial law, which Jesus was careful to fulfill in every detail, was still in force. It was only abrogated when from the cross and through the eternal spirit Jesus offered himself unblemished to God in the Holy of Holies in heaven and caused the veil of the earthly temple to be torn in two, cried, It is finished, and died. Through all his life and labors, it was his declared will and purpose to fulfill the law. In regard to his baptism, it could be no different. Such is especially true of him who at his baptism was consecrated to be our high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek. This name means king of righteousness, because Jesus came to fulfill all righteousness for us and to constitute us as perfectly righteous before our holy God in terms of his holy and righteous law. But Jesus' baptism also involved his anointing. For as verse 16, 17 say, As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up from the water. Note, not up from under the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove coming to rest on him. And the voice from heaven said, This is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. It was only because Jesus had been richly washed in baptism by John and inwardly anointed by the Spirit, who came upon him in real baptism, that Jesus could apply the words of Isaiah 61.1 to himself, saying, The Spirit of Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. Thus, if the descent of the Holy Spirit into his life at the time of his anointing 
was the real or inward anointing, of what could his baptism, with which it was inseparably connected, be but symbolic of that anointing? But how could an anointing and coming down upon or resting upon be symbolized by immersion? Thus the simple truth is that Jesus was not immersed, but anointed by John by sprinkling or pouring. Only in this way was he officially appointed to his messianic work as the anointed one by John. If, in fact, he was immersed, then he was not the Christ, the Messiah. For these words in the Greek and Hebrew, respectively, mean the anointed one. And only in this way could he have fulfilled all righteousness according to God's law. For immersion is contrary to what the law required and foreign to that which he, as our Messiah and representative, was obligated to fulfill. And it is he who was baptized by John who will baptize you, says John in Matthew 3.11, not with mere water as I do, but with Holy Spirit and fire. And that brings us secondly to Jesus' baptism of us. Yes, Jesus will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. As John testifies in John 1.33, and Jesus himself in Acts 1, verse 5, he would be his people whom Jesus would baptize with the Holy Spirit. But all unbelievers will be baptized with the fire of his judgment. For as John said of Jesus in Matthew 3.12, his winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat his people, into the barn. But the chaff, all unbelievers, he will burn with unquenchable fire. But now how is Christ's baptism with the Holy Spirit pictured and described? Well, in Acts 2, on the day of Pentecost, that baptism is described as a resting upon, each one of them baptized, and as a pouring out of God's Spirit, as stated by the prophet Joel and by Peter on that day. In Acts 11, 15, 16, Peter describes that baptism as the Holy Spirit falling upon the Gentiles, just as on us. John and Jesus themselves drew the contrast and connection between water baptism and Holy Spirit baptism, that though they clearly differ, yet they are inseparably linked. Clearly, there is a difference between real Holy Spirit baptism and ritual baptism the sacrament of baptism. Yet, as Ephesians 4 emphatically asserts, there is but one baptism. Thus, as J. Adams says, the only possible conclusion that one may reach is that the two must be but different aspects of the same thing. And if that is so, which it is, then it is only their identity of mode that shows it so. One is the external symbol of which the other is the internal reality. There is, then, water baptism and spirit baptism, ritual and real. And the ritual must symbolize the real, or it is no symbol at all, no sign, and has no point. So when we read again and again, as in Acts 10 and 44 and further, that the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word, and that they were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles, we hear Peter saying, can anyone forbid water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit, just as we have? No, just as the Holy Spirit did not receive them, but they received the Holy Spirit, so the water of baptism does not receive them, but they receive the water of baptism. 
In light of this, can we imagine any other mode to symbolize this pouring out or falling of the Holy Spirit upon believers in real baptism? To be anything other than the pouring or sprinkling of water in the sacrament of baptism? For the reality and its symbol are uniform. So our water baptism was never meant to symbolize merely our death, burial, resurrection with Christ, as the immersionists think, but rather the pouring out of the Holy Spirit upon our life, by whom we are not only washed and set free from all the guilt and power of our sin, but united to Christ in the fullness of his glorious person and work. And we are united with him not only to his death, burial, and resurrection as symbolized by immersion, but united with him in his ascension, glory, rule, and authority to judge, even the angels as well. As with Jesus, our baptism is also the symbol of our anointing as Christians, who share in Christ our chief prophet, our high priest, and eternal king. So we are anointed to be prophets who confess Christ, priests who offer themselves to God as a living sacrifice of thanks, and kings who fight against sin and the devil in this life and afterwards will reign with Christ over all creation for all eternity. Thus, as Jesus was anointed at his baptism to be the Christ, so we are anointed by or anointed at our baptism to be Christians. And it's Jesus who baptizes us with the Holy Spirit, with whom he was not only baptized, but whom he merited for us by his perfect obedience and sacrifice on the cross. Thus, as Peter says of Jesus in Acts 2.33, exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the earth the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out that what you now see and hear. And so Jesus has fulfilled at Pentecost and is fulfilling today the promise of Ezekiel 36, 25 to 28. I will baptize clean, or I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and keep my laws. You will be my people, and I will be your God. Here again the mode is described as sprinkling, since the sprinkling with clean water symbolizes the outpouring of the Holy Spirit who is to be put in within. So on the day of Pentecost, Acts 2 verse 4 says, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. But lastly, and more importantly still, baptism not only signifies the pouring of the Holy Spirit into a Christian's life and their cleansing from sin because of Christ, but their union with Christ himself. For Christian baptism, in the name of the triune God, is baptism into Christ. Thus, the record of a Holy Spirit baptizing people is not only negative, with the actual cleansing of all their sin and their daily victory over its power, but it is positive. For joined to Christ, not only in their record of sin erased, but the entire righteous record of Jesus Christ, with whom the believer is positively identified, is credited to them. And by the Holy Spirit, becomes their experience as well. And that includes the power not only to die to sin and to live to God, be united with Christ in his death and resurrection, but as those who are also united with Christ in his ascension, the power to seek the things above where Christ is seated and to reign with him over all creation. Baptism by immersion cannot picture this. For though Romans 6 and Colossians 2 where we believe, 
or where the believer is said to be buried with Christ in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God, Colossians 2.14, these passages are not speaking of the sacrament of ritual baptism at all. In fact, there is not a drop of water to be found in them. Rather, they are describing just two of the effects of real Holy Spirit baptism, and not the whole effect, but only two wonderful, though partial, effects of our union with Christ upon our lives. And that is the power to die to sin, to to deny ourselves the gratification of our sinful desires, and instead to display our new life in Christ by living according to God's word and will, and for his glory alone. The problem is, not only can baptism be immer- by immersion not picture this, for Christ died by crucifixion. Immersion suggests death by drowning. And Christ was buried in a room. Immersion suggests burial in water. Nor does immersion picture the resurrection of Christ, who came forth not as a drowned person with a dripping, disheveled body, but with a glorious resurrected body. But in, the, but in addition to this, Baptism pictures much more, for it pictures our union with Christ and all that he accomplished on behalf of his people. Romans 6 and Colossians 2 are only concerned with the believer's struggle with sin, and the argument there is that you have been united with Christ in the fullness of his person and work. Then certainly you have been united with him in his death and resurrection. In other words, Paul is saying, don't you know that as many as were baptized unto Christ Jesus... Romans 6, verse 3, And who therefore shares in all Christ's benefits certainly share in his death and resurrection as well? That's it. So finally, what does it really mean to be baptized into Christ? It means the same thing as when in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 2 says that in the miraculous crossing of Israel through the Red Sea, they were all baptized into Moses. Clearly, the meaning here is not that they were immersed into Moses but that they were all identified with Moses. For the original word in Exodus 14.31 means that they supported Moses, stood firm in Moses, and believed Moses. Basically, then, it means that they came under the controlling influence of Moses. And so, just as he passed from death in Egypt to a life from Pharaoh, by passing through the depths of the Red Sea on dry land, so did all Israel who were baptized into him. <clears throat> so it is with those who are baptized into Christ, and the mode of their ritual water baptism is similar. For as with Moses, the ones who were baptized were not the ones who were immersed in the sea. Rather, it was those who were condemned at the enemies of God. And so it was at the time of Noah's flood, which is another picture of baptism. As in First Peter 3.21 tells us, for those who were baptized were identified with Noah in the ark and didn't even get wet. Well, it was those who were judged and destroyed as partakers of a corrupt and unbelieving world who were totally immersed. Beloved, if you have been baptized, either as an infant or an adult, by sprinkling or pouring, you have been baptized indeed, and in a way that, as Jesus says, fulfills all righteousness. And you should never seek to be baptized in any other way again. Only seek this, that your water baptism be filled by your Holy Spirit baptism. So in Ephesians 5.18 says, Do not be drunk with wine, which leads to debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit, and make sure that you can say, as Paul says in Philippians 1.21, For to me, to live is Christ, 
<clears throat> so, parents, make sure that you impress upon your children the significance of their baptism. Speak to them of the seriousness of their sin and of the infinite cost of God to wash away their sins by the blood of Jesus shed on the cross, which God has promised them in, his, in their baptism. And declare to them, day by day, the abundant and glorious life that God has promised us in Jesus Christ, who is baptized as our minister, Messiah, that we, baptized with the Spirit, should know the fullness of life, now and forever, in him. Amen.